Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my longtime friend, co-host, and the soothing light at the end of the Vase reality tunnel, which may or may not be a freight train coming your way, Mr. Stephen James Buckley. Hello, Vase heads. Uh, I'm not sure Vase heads is the right word. We probably need another word for people who listen to our show. Vase heads will have to do for now. But if anyone can think of a an appropriate term for uh, for people who enjoy this podcast then please uh please contact us uh, immediately so yeah um this is actually going to be our 23rd episode and we thought it fitting to spend some of this episode talking about cosmic trigger and the work of robert anton wilson uh, an author we've both come to love since reading his work um, I think we'll probably refer to him as R.A.W. from yeah. now on in the podcast, just to keep things uh, simple. So our guest tonight, uh, we chose someone who we felt embodied a lot of what R.A.W. talked about in his work. Um, we first heard of this guest on various podcasts and went on to buy some of his many books. Um, we became fans of both his writing and his overall approach. So this is a man who has apparently read Cosmic Trigger 1 30 times. I think it's 29. 29, okay. And that's what we're going on with, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, So he's definitely qualified. Uh, So we'd like to welcome author, researcher, lecturer, psychic quester, occult history buff, and Glastonbury resident, Mr. Paul Weston. Hello, Paul. Hello, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. So as this is the 23rd episode of Ace, and we realise it's also coming in 2023, and in light of the fact that Robert Anton Wilson has been dead for more than 16 years now, uh, you were actually our first choice for this episode. Um, and for listeners uh, who are wondering why, who may not have been familiar with Cosmic Trigger, 23 is a recurring number of significance and synchronicity throughout his work, particularly within Cosmic Trigger, uh, which is a book that we've talked about a lot on base. Um, and I know that Robert Anton Wilson, R.A.W., has had a big impact on your life and, and your work. And, and uh, you know, as you say, you've read the book what, 29 times. And in Cosmic Trigger, uh, Robert Anton Wilson describes his work that he's doing as sort of a gonzo ontology. Um, and whilst I'd probably be hesitant to describe or, or to limit your work by describing it in that way, um, th- there is a definite sort of continuation of R.A.W.'s work within yours, I think, because your books and lectures roll together mythology, history, uh, synchromysticism, personal symmetry, and a kind of multi-layered psychogeography, um, which is concentrated mostly on the British Isles and in particular Glastonbury and the surrounding areas. Um, and this sort of explores the dimension of time almost as much as it does space. And there's a real sense in your work of, that is very personal, you know, that it's a lot of it comes from lived experience, which uh, makes the work sort of very special and unique, whilst also, um, I guess, sort of calling on the ever-seeking spirit of Robert Anton Wilson, as well as elements of the psychic questing of, say, Andrew Collins and writers of other mystical histories, such uh, of the British Isles, like um, Anthony Roberts. Um, and um, you sort of... Um, put all this together and combine it in a way which is very lucid, compelling and fascinating to read. And that's why it's such a pleasure and a privilege to have you on with us today. Um, so, Paul, what are you working on at the moment and um, and where has that work been taking you? <laughs> well, you uh, are talking to me um, at a very interesting time in my life and the life of Glastonbury. You first contacted me a couple of months ago uh, with the suggestion, you know, that we, we have a little chat and I've had a, a very, very powerful month, which I think demonstrates in terms of how it's played out and how I've just got along with it, the extent to which 
when you're completely and utterly infused with this material, when it is just part of your mental furniture as almost a reflex action, that if you're activated, if you've already had enough experiences of, of synchronicity and, and, and a certain way of playing the game and being interactive with it, things will do themselves, especially when you're in a very potent landscape like this and especially when you've got a few people around you who are up for it as well. So to, you're talking to me on, it's now today, Sunday, uh, the 26th of March, I can start an, a fairly expansive story on Saturday, the 25th of February because I found myself uh, with a small group of people scattering some of the ashes of Hank Harrison, who was Courtney Love's father, at a location in the centre of the mysterious fabled Glastonbury Zodiac, which I should say is an alleged configuration of landscape features centred around Glastonbury that maps out signs of the Zodiac and is of supposedly immemorial antiquity. There's no archaeology to back this thing up. There's no conventional history to back it up. But I know from my personal experience, I know from the experiences that I've had uh, with Andrew Collins, as detailed in my book, Avalonian Eon, that when you decide that you're going to play games with this thing and take it as red, big stuff happens. So there's a place right in the centre of it called Park Wood. Now, Hank Harrison, very, very interesting guy. You know, out in the wider world, he's primarily known, obviously, as the father of Courtney Love. There's a whole bunch of contention there. He alleges that she murdered Kurt Cobain. She will retort by saying, you know, that he fed her acid when she was still a small child. From the point of view of what am I doing, helping scatter some of his ashes... He, uh, as some people may know, was at one point manager of the Grateful Dead. So he's someone that's come out of that milieu of the psychedelic 60s. He's also been very interested in, in mysticism and the Glastonbury, the whole Arthurian thing. Now, round about the turn of the 60s into the 70s at the point when we had our first major Glastonbury pop festival, the one that was filmed as Glastonbury Fair in 1971, when he was manager of the dead, he had hoped to get them to actually play there. They weren't able to do that, but they were able to contribute to a a triple album that came out of the soundtrack of, of, of that film. And he was interested in the work of John Michel. He was work, interested in the Glastonbury Zodiac, the early ideas that he came up, up with about it. And he persuaded the dead to donate a lot of money to uh, a British group called the Research into Lost Knowledge Organisation, Rilco for short. Uh, and they, in turn, you know, went on to publish pamphlets, booklets, have conferences that all put out 
what you could call earth mysteries of the time, ley lines, sacred sites. And Hank had gone on to study. Uh, so Hank at one point had studied with Dame Francis Yates at the Warburg Institute, so that's quite something. He'd got a book out called The Cauldron and the Grail. And here's big thing. It's, it, it kind of starts off with an examination of, of the whole effect you've got in Newgrange, whereas many people will know at a certain period of, of each year, sunlight, you know, comes through this long tunnel and hits the chamber. And he basically examines that and goes forward in time to the period of the Gothic cathedrals where you've got similar sorts of effects. And he basically feels that there is some kind of archaic mindset uh, centred around what later comes to be called the Grail that is there all the way through. Uh, it's a good book. You can still find it out there. But he also went on to write a lot of articles on one of the medieval grail romances that's generally called the High History of the Holy Grail. And at the end of that romance, there's a little thing about the material in it has come from books in the library of what is is obviously intended to be Glastonbury Abbey. And it's from this text that the mystical sculptress Catherine Maltwood later felt she had discovered uh, evidence of this so-called Glastonbury Zodiac. And Anne had all these theories about this and who had written it and so on. And I'd mentioned uh, in my books, Mysterium Artorius and Avalonian Eon, what Anne had been saying about the high history. Years later, uh, and we're talking pretty much 10 years ago, um, there was a group of people, enthusiasts in Glastonbury for Catherine Walkwood's work, the artist, the writer, the researcher, Yuri Leach, who's the person responsible for most of the cover art of my books, he had convened this group called the Maltwood Moat. And the way it all worked out was our enthusiasms turned into a series of articles, turned into an anthology called Signs and Secrets of the Glastonbury Zodiac. And we made contact with Hank. Yuri made contact with Hank and we got an article out of him for it. And Hank also had been in, in uh, various places in Canada where there are archives relating to Catherine Walker's material. And he got, I, don't, I can't remember how, but he got hold of some of this material and he actually um, gave it to Yuri um, some years later. So when, when he died, uh, and this was in January last year, so it's a little while ago, when he died, we felt that we needed to give him uh, a bit of a nod. And a bit like with Leary's Ashes, you know, they're not all done in one go. They, they're distributed. I think some went to Newgrange. But how we end up in Parkwood on the 25th of February is a bit flipping random because Anchors died in January 2022. The whole business of actually sending somebody the ashes of a dead person through the post it is a whole thing in itself. Uh, Yuri's got him. He was going to come here. Then he changed, you know, then something intervened. So us going in there on that day seems to be quite random. Now, I've got some associations, very, very strong associations with Parkwood, which I've talked about in a few of my books. I've talked about it in Avalonian Eon and also Glastonbury, Psychogeography and Atagartis, as I think the fullest um, exposition of my associations here. This place is is right in uh, the centre of the Glastonbury Zodiac and has been sort of 
considered to be a place of, of, of the meeting of opposites and the alchemy of light and dark and so on and so forth. Back in 1990, there had been a guy living in Glastonbury, uh, a known commodity who was a self-professed black magician who said that he was going to go out and collect souls by killing people in a set sequence. He'd made a little list uh, in accordance with people's astrological um, birth signs and he, he had basically told a lot of people that he was going to just basically go out and start killing people. And the terrible thing is that he did actually uh, make headway on this literally because there were uh, a group of travellers, sort of hippie types, who were camping around the area around Cape Park Wood in 1990. And he had basically hacked one of these guys up with a machete in June 1990, just before my Andrew Collins led a, a group of us on a 36-hour vision quest intensive around the Glastonbury Zodiac. So that was quite a thing. But what was even more of a thing was we were back about a month later. This guy had been caught. And we came back about a month later for some weird episode where we were we were supposedly staking out some ceremony that someone had psychically tuned into, the usual psychic quest in Malarkey. And it involved us having a night out in the middle of nowhere at a place called Dundon Beacon. And we were totally amazed when we got into town to hear that this guy, this murderer, this self-professed black magic murderer had literally escaped from a police van and it was on the loose. So we spent this memorable night out in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, creating a sort of semi-armed camp for ourselves, not knowing what on earth was going to happen. So that kind of stuff sticks in your mind. You know, there's a, there's a good account of it in my Avalonian Eon. But when I went in, you know, February the 25th, when I go into Parkwood this year, I, I'm obviously not, ex- I haven't exactly forgotten this. You know, this is, is is the kind of thing that you don't forget. But I also thought, I'm not saying a word. I'm not stirring this up. We're not in here for this. We're in here to give a nod to Hank. And indeed we did. I went in there with Yuri and two female members of the Fellowship of Isis and we had a, a really beautiful little uh, mini ceremonial uh, right in the centre of this part, part wood. Now, the other association you see that was also there in my head, uh, which I've gone into in my books, is I was a a great watcher uh, of Twin Peaks. I binged it all in in, a matter of a couple of weeks, the original series back in 1992. And I was very struck by the conclusion of it, where you suddenly find yourself presented with this place called Glastonbury Grove. And it's a place which is potentially a portal to either, you know, the White Lodge or the Black Lodge, depending on what your intention is and and so on. And the murderous spirit, whatever you define in Bob, emerges out of this kind of portal in Glastonbury Grove and goes forth, you know, I think he's actually said that he's, he's collecting souls or something along those, those lines. And when it came out, I wondered, you know, I thought of our, there's literally a grove of trees in part wood um, and 
so as I began to ponder this, you know, I met some people who had been planting a circle of sycamore trees uh, in the vicinity of Parkwood on the night in 1991, I think it was, that the episode of Twin Peaks that discusses, that, that depicts Glastonbury Grove of a circle of sycamore trees around it. They literally had been planting a circle of sycamore trees in the immediate vicinity of Parkwood and then they came back home and they put the TV on and this happened. So I, I thought it's, this is not just some crazy ass thing that I've got going on. And I, I met someone who had, who had spent a night there, uh, spent a few weeks there actually, um, uh, camped out in this Parkwood and they said to me, and they hadn't watched Twin Peaks, they said to me, there's something really weird about the hooting of the owls in there. And as, you know, all Twin Peaks fans know the owls are not what they seem as a major motif that runs through all this indicative of, of high strangeness uh, being afoot. And I later discovered, uh, you know, that Mark Frost, who is responsible for what you might call the more occultist aspects of the plotting of Twin Peaks, rather than Lynch's surrealism. Uh, he gave an interview, um, I think it was in The Independent in 1992, where he said that he specifically said that he got the idea from the Black and the White Lodge from Dion Fortune's psychic self-defence. So there was this kind of thing there. And all this is in my head. Now, we have a lovely time, February the 25th. Give Hank a good send-off. I come home. I can't help but fail to mention to my girlfriend in the evening some of my associations from 1990. And when I wrote Avalonian Eon, I'd actually gone to the local library uh, in Wells and I'd gone through the microfiches of the newspapers and I, when this guy had escaped from the police wagon, you know, there was a piece in the newspaper and I'd got it printed out and I've still got it. Um, and I showed it to her. Now, the next morning, so that's basically, we're now on the 26th of March, it's the 26th of, of Feb. We've headed out to uh, have a little wander into Glastonbury Abbey, which is just five minutes down the road from me, and as we're walking by, there's like a police car just pulling up in the middle of the road, and this guy's kind of speaking on the radio and think, hello, what's going on here? Well, hour or two later, we come back, and there's like an enormous police presence. There's like wagons, there's like, you know, alleyways blocked off. Summit has gone down. Summit has unquestionably gone down. Now, what has actually happened is that an 89-year-old man has been stabbed to death outside his house, literally just a couple of hundred metres down the road from me. And for three or four days... The whole place is just chocker, still with wagons. I'm sort of going into the centre of town past, guys in forensic outfits pulling drain covers up with hooks. They're going door to door. What the hell's going on? And in the end, there's this kind of a real dark, surreal kind of comic aspect to it where they find the murder weapon in a Wellington boat improper job you know and uh, as far as I know I've got to be real careful how I put this now because there are some things that are still indeterminate but as far as I know the perpetrator someone who's been arrested for this now 
was somebody that had been involved in some kind of shamanic course here in Glastonbury, somebody whose family were already um, expressing concern as to their mental well-being back at Christmas time. I, I can't say too much about that because I might just be going into the realm of, of gossip, but that much. So I'm thinking to myself, this is very, very goddamn strange that like I've gone it because I, I don't go into Parkwood every week. I haven't been in Parkwood for 10 years. You know, I've gone in there. I've got these really turbocharged associations and something this macabre has occurred immediately. Uh, what is the cause and effect here? And, and uh, you know, I, I'm participating in a mysterious situation that is bigger than my understanding or of anybody's. But my background, my temperament and so forth predisposes me to somehow connect into some kind of angle to it that other people um, are going to miss. And it's not as if, you know, that's... One of the things about Cosmic Trigger, one of the things that makes it a legendary book is that you can say it's psychoactive. You can say that if people read it even a few times, they are highly likely to find synchronicities beginning to increase, maybe relating precisely to the actual contents of the book but also perhaps just in relation to their, their own life here. So primed by this, you know, one of, one of the things about R.A.W. is it's not just about occultism and the potency of his connection, for example, to the work of Alistair Crowley or about psychedelic drugs, the potency of his connection with Timothy Leary. So all of that is a very strong alchemy, but I'm long been... Um, very taken by the extent to which R.A.W. is a big fan of James Joyce and some of the most interesting stuff that I've ever seen about Finnegan's Wake has actually come from R.A.W. And, you know, Joyce and so on uh, are woven, you know, they're there in Cosmic Trigger, they're not a major part of it, but there is a sense that you get with R.A.W. that he found that Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses are likewise psychoactive texts. So you're kind of going into this sort of Mandelbrot here. Cosmic Trigger itself is a psychoactive text. The Book of Lies by Alistair Crowley is a psychoactive text. Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake are psychoactive texts. Now we've got, you know, here in Glastonbury, uh, one of the greatest literary masterpieces of the 20th century is a Glastonbury romance by John Cooper Powys. Uh, something that I've, yeah, all right, it seems preposterous that I've read Cosmic Triggers 29 times. That is over a period of nearly 40 years. It's also preposterous that Glastonbury romance, which is a thousand pages long, you know, I once read that three times in a in a 12 month period, but that was because the potency of this book had very spectacularly announced itself. You know, Powys was somebody who seemed to function at the far end of a very strange spectrum uh, of which, you know, poetic inspiration, if you like, 
tipping right across into the downright paranormal. I'd first come across him in Colin Wilson's The Occult. He had a very, very peculiar mentality, to say the least. You know, a whole convention of psychoanalysts would be vexed to try and figure him out. But there's a titanic genius in there. What he does in Glastonbury is he has anchored an extraordinary story which is about the effects of a mythic landscape and its peculiar potency on the everyday life of its inhabitants. You know, this is back in the late 20s, early 30s. But he's anchored it very carefully with the geography. You can follow his characters walking up and down roads and this, that and the other. And one of the things that's that's very distinctive about the narrative is that there is um, a horrible murder in there. And I won't go too much into this, but it's sufficient to say that during the period of time in 2003, 10 years ago, when I was just going over and over and over, I, I got the, the, the sense that each year the narrative of this thing starts on the 5th of March. You have a kind of remix replay. You know, it was a, that's the two, this is Glastonbury Romance 2003. We are in the midst of some novel and we are, we have a certain amount of free will, obviously, but we're, there's a very strange indeterminate fate. There is some kind of Gnostic demiurgic forces at work. And in the midst of all that, you know, somebody that I know, somebody that I'd work with, uh, was murdered in utterly macabre circumstances where they'd been stabbed and left um, in their home. You know, the corpse just left on a bed and eventually uh, the people downstairs uh, were alerted to the fact that something was going wrong, something was badly wrong because they had maggots coming down through the light fittings and it was reported in the Sun newspaper eventually as the maggot murder. And this whole thing conformed very strongly in terms of dates and in terms of very strange events to what was going on um, in Glastonbury Romance and my reading of it. You know, I've written about this. At, I've got some stuff out there. I've got uh, a video on YouTube, uh, John Cooper Poets and the Psychogeography of Wirral Hill, where I talk about this in, in a, a lot of detail. But it's sufficient for this, again, this story this year, you see, the details of this murder start coming out. It happens just before this 5th of March when the whole novel kicks off. And it's literally, I've almost got to a point that I, I'm almost frightened to go anywhere near it because I don't know what the hell is going to kick off next time round. And it's on the 6th of March this year that details start coming out in the local press and stuff that the police are talking about. And I'm just wondering, you know, how... How does this how does this work? Now last year we actually had a gathering of people um, on the 5th of March to read stuff from a Glastonbury romance. And and one of the people, uh, you know, the guy that basically set this off was the playwright John Constable, also known as, as John Crow, who's moved to Glastonbury a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, me and him were steered together and soon started having some fascinating interaction and conversation. His background um, is, is most instructional. Uh, as a guy that's a poet, a playwright, he's had a bohemian lifestyle. There's a lot of stuff there, but for the sake of what we're talking about now, 
Back in the 90s, he had come into uh, the social circle of Ken Campbell and was very taken with the fact that Ken had put on this, you know, epic Illuminates play, uh, the warp parties that have been going on in London. Um, you know, Ken's daughter Daisy was coming to the fore at that point. And it was shortly after um, taking Ken and a few people round um, John's stomping ground in London, uh, the Southwark area and so forth, that he had his, his, his primary sort of experience that has set off an astonishing creative outpouring since. After a heroic dose of hallucinogens, um, he felt himself in some way overshadowed by uh, the spirit of a medieval sex worker. Now, in terms of psychogeography and so forth, there had been some excavations for the London Underground, a new line that was being dug. They'd come across a whole bunch of skeletons. There was basically a, a cemetery of outcasts, you know, medieval sex workers and so on. The short story is, I mean, anyone that's interested, Crossbones, check out Crossbones on, on, on the internet because this is now a flipping sanctuary, thanks to, to John's work, uh, of all of these outcasts and so forth. Hey, some kind of collective intelligence that he called the ghosts, because that was what these, these women were, were nicknamed at the time. They were sanctioned uh, by the church. And in fact, ultimately, uh, the guy that set it all in motion, Henry of Bois, was um, Archbishop of Winchester. He was also abbot of Glastonbury Abbey. He's the guy that Hank Harrison was fixated on as having possibly been an author of this high history of the Holy Grail. That's where the geese come from. And John uh, created plays, created poems, created a whole body of work, did a mystery play in Southwark Cathedral, ended up on songs of praise, all sorts of stuff. And his kind of repertory company, if you like, included people, uh, a woman called Jacqueline Hague, who now lives in Glastonbury as well. She was part of the whole Daisy Campbell Cosmic Trigger crew. She was around when the KLF came back and did Toxic Book of the Dead and so on. These people are all now in Glastonbury. And um, last year, as I say, John had gathered a bunch of people. I turned him on to poets when he first came here. I said, you've just got to read Glastonbury Romance. It's a work of titanic genius, and, and it will just mash your brain and inspire you. And I was very gratified that he, he, he got into it as well. So we had this kind of reading last year, and there was, uh, within a few weeks of that, there was some flipping horrible murder here where some uh, a woman who's actually a yoga teacher um, stabbed this guy to death who, was, who had got a bit of a colourful history, it must be said. But we immediately thought, oh, dear, you know, this is this is why this year I literally was scared to do it. I just thought, I'm not doing it. And, yeah, all of this stuff just came out everywhere. Now, last week, um, John did an event in Glastonbury talking about all of his life, actually. Um, and I was there and I made sure that he, he, that he clarified a bit more about his interaction with Ken Campbell. And to me, to me, it was like um, the goose, profound, ancient female wisdom. You know, it's a bit like Lady, like Babylon in, in Crowley's magic, but it, the Magdalene, the, the repressed wisdom of the sacred hall and so forth. 
But there's definitely a touch of Eris and Discordianism in this as, as well. You know, Ken was around and, and was a formative influence at that time. And it's like you literally, the way in which your own very, very distinct individual temperament somehow gets activated is still in accordance with the people around that activate you. You know, there's no question Andy Collins um, activated me, um, you know. And when John put something on, I went there on Wednesday night with my girlfriend and I said, we're getting out of here the minute he finishes this because something will kick off and, we'll, we'll, you know, and I'll be the one that flipping cops it. And every time he does do something, you know, last um, Halloween, he did a little something and I ended up, oh, we were, we were in a, a pub right down the bottom of Glastonbury High Street by the Market Cross. And while we were sitting by the window, um, some real strange scene kicked off with a teenage runaway being basically um, grabbed hold of by a policeman. And when I say grabbed hold of by a policeman, uh, it was quite, it became an increasingly disturbing scene because this uh, policeman was trying to restrain this girl who was shouting and screaming and saying, don't touch me, don't touch me. And he like, he had his hand over her face and he got slammed up on this flipping police car. And at one point he got his taser out and I immediately stand up because I can see it from the pub. And I said, what the fuck is going on out there? And before we knew where we were, there's a whole bunch of people, there's a whole bunch of women out there confronting this policeman and, like, the people are filming it and this policeman is getting quite agitated. He's not, may not have been handling it that well, should we say. And eventually another wagon of police turn up and there's a female police officer and at that point we leave it. But it's like, it's just very, very edgy and it's very near, you know. So last Wednesday, it's like, right, I'm getting out of here. And I'm walking home... And I'm walking over a zebra crossing um, in the I Street by, by uh, the post office. And there's a car slowly coming along. I just put my hand up, yo. But this car just doesn't stop. This car just, apparently, I was told the driver was just, just flipping, looking up. And he stops, you know, right up against me. Um, and I, I'm a bit flipping angry about it. And it exchanged some sharp words with the driver. But my girlfriend, you see, she was once hit by a car on a zebra crossing and was smashed down on the curb and had her front teeth knocked out 20 years ago. So she's like totally freaked out. We walk down the road and we've got this adrenaline hit and we go down this alleyway by the side of St John's Church and as we're walking along it, so at the other end of it, a guy comes into focus and he's a real tall guy with a big dog and with that, he's carrying, there's like a long pole and what is actually reflected as a shadow is like an axe head. So it's like I am seeing walking towards me down an alleyway that is like you've got that amount of room between you and the person next to me. Some shadowy guy that I can hardly even see who appears to be holding an enormous great axe. And as he comes by, I'm not even going to look at him girlfriend looked at him and said he was more he looked freaked out by us but she saw it completely differently I thought he was holding this axe up she saw him holding an axe but he was holding it down as if he was going to swing it up into us now there's a lot of hippies about you know it's like he seemed to be holding stuff that was all wrapped up in canvas there's a tangible explanation for it the way the light felt and whatever but there was something very 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 uncanny about it 
went home and just thought, shit. And you may know that one of my books is The Occult Battle of Britain. I've given an awful lot of attention to Dion Fortune, 1940, Nazi occultism. Glastonbury tour, you walk up a path that is by Dion Fortune's old house, where the author Geoffrey Ash, who died last year, um, later lived, and you go into a field that is is got a, a National Trust display plaque up that tells you a picture of Glastonbury Tour, a little bit of history about Glastonbury Tour. I walk up there, and this plaque has got an enormous great swastika on it. Now, it's me that flipping finds it. Me, I'm the one that comments on it. I'm the one that somehow zooms in on it. It stood out a flipping mile to me because it's literally, I doubt if it's even 10 feet away from Dion Fortune's old residence, the, the, the garden fence. Now, I don't believe that whoever did that even necessarily knows a flipping thing about the, the occult battle of Britain in 1940 and Dion Fortune and the visualisations in the tour. But it's what I'd call um, a waking dream proximity alert. If you, and this is when I say a waking dream, if you dreamt that, if you dreamt that you were walking into the field to go along to Glastonbury Tour and you clock that you're right next door to Dion Fortune's old house and then you see a picture of Glastonbury Tour with an enormous great swastika on it, when you woke up, you think, shit, man, that's what is that? That's not good, is it? But when things are really full on, it's a waking dream. This stuff literally externalises itself. It is showing you that there is clearly something not that far beneath the surface that is stirring that is not well, you know, and it's one of the things we've had in Glastonbury. There's a lot of what I call um, new age hippie types who have been infiltrated by so much conspiratorial thinking that they're willing to deny the Holocaust or say that, or at least be a revisionist of it, and there are a couple of people, there's at least one person in Glastonbury from time to time, I'm not going to name them, but they're well on my radar, who is an absolute inveterate, total Hitler-worshipping, Holocaust-denying, full-on, total New Age Nazi. Now, I don't think this person is responsible for that swastika at all, but they've been very visible in this town over the last month, six weeks or so. So that's what I mean by the waking dream. That's why... Because I have a habitual mode of thinking that has been cultivated for 40 years where I'm not passive about this stuff, I know that like, if you engage with certain subjects, the timing of it may be most peculiar and the stuff will kind of come back at you. So it's me, the author of The Occult Back to Britain. I mean, this thing looked, this swastika looked like it had been there for a while. It looked like maybe even someone had tried to clean it off and failed, but it's like, I haven't heard a word about it. It's not anywhere out there on the Glastonbury grapevine. But earlier on today, I've gone and got it photographed and I've put it up on, uh, there's a Remember the Unfortunate Facebook page. And obviously the National Trust have been contacted for heaven's sake, just completely erased this, you know. And it's part of, it's almost what I call a sense of responsibility that after a while, when you're the only person around 
that has a particular mindset and this is the potency of what is coming back at you, you can't just sit on it. There are some things that you, you, you have to sort of do something about. And this is one of them, you know. And I found myself, you know, last year we had the, the um, Platinum Jubilee of the, uh, of the Queen and there's a certain amount of things that inevitably be going to happen as a celebration in the town. And I found, because I know the history, we had a uh, hundred years ago last year, there was a pageant by a woman called Alice Buckton, who was a contemporary of Deal Fortune. And she created this pageant of historical characters that went down the high street. She made a movie. And in this movie, Made in 1922, there's all these historical vignettes of life in Glastonbury through the ages, Joseph Arimathea coming here, um, Alfred the Great and Guthrum, Richard III coming here. So I thought we've got to kind of big up this centenary and try and morph what we're doing with it. And yes, indeed, we ended up getting having a, a pageant down the high street which was filmed by people with exactly the same camera angles as 1922, I somehow found myself writing a speech for Joseph Arimathea to perform to a bunch of druids who conveniently appeared in Glastonbury Abbey independently of the uh, of the Jubilee. I found you know, all kinds of things was coming in and I managed also to morph in. I'm particularly interested in Nicholas Rurick. You know, there's a, 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 a long lecture of mine on YouTube about his life and work, the Pax Cultura. I think that... Um, Glastonbury is one of the wisdom treasures of humanity and mythos, our history. So we ended up, you know, someone in Glastonbury called Talia Brown, who's got, got a talent for creating banners. She created these Rurik banners and we were marching down the ice street with all, the, all these Rurik banners. It was how my mentality gradually is, 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 is being given the opportunity. Um, you know, I'm on a committee, a council committee, a cultural committee now. I've got the chance to weave all this stuff in. But as I'm doing this, so all this, all this weird shit is going on, man. So that is my kind of, that's my news report of, um, you know, you know, the last month or so with a few flourishes of, of context there. It sounds wild. It sounds like, a, I mean, from... From the sound of, of like just finished reading Avalonian Eon and then hearing that as well, it just sounds like Glastonbury is the place to be. It just sounds like there's this kind of, it's like constantly charged. Well, it is very, it's unquestionably massively psychoactive. Everything is switched off. Yeah. But let's let's not in any way pretend that it's all sweetness and light. It's well, not. Definitely not. No. You know there is there is the sense that it was once some kind of um, place of the underworld and the ancestors. Because we've kind of got a mentality, maybe conditioned a little bit by a couple of thousand years of Christianity and horror movies and so on, we tend to think that the dead are scary. You know, we've lost our sense of connection with the ancestors. There's a whole bunch of ways in which we've kind of made that realm of the underworld potentially dangerous. Now, that's not to, um, to say that there is no, no nasties, no evil, you know, I'm not one of these people that believes that it's all, all light and it's just, there is, some, there is some, some very, very problematical stuff in this universe, but we've made it worse for ourselves um, by disconnecting ourselves from the ancestors. And, and, yeah, you see it with Halloween. 
the way the conventional Halloween is in this country, like ghosts, dead people, it's all it's all supposed to be scary and, and horrible, um, and it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm sure that this this place was in pre-Christian times uh, an Isle of the Dead. I haven't got any problem believing that whatsoever. Um, there was, I think I do mention it in a couple of my books, actually. Back in 1998, there was a discovery at Cadbury Castle, which is a place that's had Arthurian associations, although they're considered a bit dubious, they don't go back all that far. There was a Bronze Age um, burial that was found right on the edge of the castle where this male figure has been put into a coffin that is clearly shaped like some kind of canoe. There's no question that that's what it's set out, out to be. And the feet are po- pointing directly towards Glastonbury Tour, which is basically telling you that that's where they thought this dead spirit was going, to Glastonbury Tour, which is entirely in keeping with the later mythology of the Isle of, Isle of Avalon and the stuff in the medieval romances. But you can't tell me for one minute that the people that wrote those medieval romances knew that. You know, this is where the genius loci overrides, you know, and presents a very unusual mystery for us to contemplate. But it's enough for me to say that it's clear that Glastonbury was a place of, of the dead. You know, that to me just is just conclusive proof. What the hell else are you supposed to make of a, a piece of evidence like that? So all that's there, that pre-Christian ancestral thing. And we have multiple layers going on here. We've got 1539, we've got the dissolution of the monasteries, we've got the terrible martyrdom of our abbot Whiting on Glastonbury Tour where this 78-year-old man is undrawn and quartered. Our wonderful abbey is, is trashed, you know, this incredible flipping library just disappears. There are bones and relics of Saxon kings and saints and all sorts, never mind what whoever was really buried in Arthur and Guinevere's tomb. All of that is gone, it's an atrocity. Then we have the Monmouth Rebellion. We have guys hanged in the high street at the time of the bloody assizes. And, you, you know, one of the bed and breakfasts up until quite recently was called Hangman's Cottage, which was immediately in the vicinity. So I've said in Avalonian Neon, sometimes when you see these kind of totally out of it people staggering about in the high street or congregating in St John's Churchyard, you don't know what kind of historical drama their befuddled brains have latched onto. You know, they're, they're, they, they could be activated by any one of multiple layers of different bits of history and trauma that have not been resolved around here. And it's certainly going to take more than a few new ages sort of holding a few crystals and visualising white light to, to sort it all out. It just, it just goes round and round. Um, and, you know, my thing, because I'm a history freak, is I... I, I I'm now anchored as firmly as I can be in what in real history around here, but I obviously bring, you know, this this additional mentality of all my other experiences to it, and so that adds adds nuances to it as 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 the game plays out. Yeah, I mean, so much of your your work as well is is uh, uh, or. Uh, well, as much as I've read and listened to your lectures, connects into that history with with Glastonbury in some way, uh, shape or form. Um, and I think that one of the things um, 
it, of living in the British Isles is that we do have all these records of history going back yeah. so long, you know, whereas, um, you know, it's some of the countries like uh, you know, in, in the US, you know, a, a lot of their history was perhaps destroyed, um, you know, by, by the way that it was settled and so on. Whereas we, we are able to tap into easily the, the this bank of information about the places in which we live. And I think that that's common throughout the British Isles. And then um, your, your work is such a great example of that. Um, how can people sort of latch into it? It's something that we've been qu- talking about on the podcast quite a lot, you know, the magic that's in a place of somewhere, you know, the synchronicities that well up in certain places um, around, uh, you know, well, a- around the world, you know, anywhere that people live really. How, how can you encourage people to connect to this history and to experience their own synchronicities and magic? Well, my, my own, you know, is a great example here. And I guess it depends on whether people are hostile to Christian history or not, because if, you've, if you're willing to play games with all the obscure saints and so on, um, 2021 Christmas Eve, I was reading Frederick Blight Bond's um, Company of Avalon, which is automatic writing pieces, on the, on the supposed collective intelligence for the monks in Glastonbury Abbey that's still accessible. And there was just some little chapter about Shaftesbury. I'm not even sure quite how I got there, but where I ended up with was this chap called Edward the Martyr. And Edward the Martyr was the son of Edgar the Peaceful. We're quite big on Edgar at the moment because our local boy, St Dunstan, uh, who became the who was abbot of Glastonbury Abbey became the Archbishop of Canterbury when he crowned Edgar as King of all of England at Bath in 1973. He created the template for the coronation ceremony that's still in use and will be used shortly. Um, may well have already been used by the time this program goes goes out for the coronation of, of Charles III. So we're, I'm quite bigging him up, but Edgar's son. Um, the thing about Edgar was um, he had multiple wives, more than one child. He had a child that was heir at the throne, came to the throne, very young, 15. And not long afterwards, uh, he is, is basically killed by his, um, supposedly by his stepmother, so that her son, who becomes Ethelred the Unready, is able to come to the throne. Now, Edward a whole series of supposed miraculous healings start occurring around his body. You know, real strange stuff to such extent that Ethelred, who has usurped him, has to install his body, you know, ultimately at Shaftesbury Abbey and he becomes the centre of a miracle-working cult all the way through the Middle Ages. Then we have the dissolution. Now, the amazing thing is they find... Um, in 1931, I think it was, his bones were discovered and it was accepted that, yeah, this is him. But there was a dispute as to what you're going to do with them because uh, the guy that found them said they need to be displayed in a way that's, you know, in keeping with how they were in the Middle Ages. And we have the absurd situation where his bones end up um, in a, a Midland Bank in Woking uh, in some kind of box while there is a dispute. Now, the people that... that ultimately get custody of it, are a a sect of Russian Orthodox monks. You know, now I'm kind of like, I'm I'm entering into this territory that I did not even know existed and I've been into Glastonbury Abbey for flipping decades. These guys call themselves literally the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia and I discovered that Russian Orthodox are quite interested in Saxon saints. 
And they end up entering, uh, creating a whole monastery dedicated to Edward de Marta um, in Surrey. And they install him with, in the midst of all these zillions of icons and they have a mass for him every single flipping day, man. And I discovered that his, his feast day was March the 18th and I bought a little icon of him from this monastery and decided that on his feast day I would go into Glastonbury Abbey and I'd you know, put up a little Facebook event, let's give a yoke to the Mark in Glastonbury Abbey, with a view to eventually going to Shaftesbury and making more connections there. So I took this icon into Glastonbury Abbey on March 18th last year and I made a point, you know, someone I knew was able to go to this monastery in Surrey and, and be part of their ceremony their service on that very day and it's kind of you know these orthodox services from most of our points of view they just go on forever they're really boring but like the ceremony the incense the chanting the candles there were more celebrants than there were audience i think there was two people in actually in the service about five guys giving it plenty but they, they were told that we were doing this thing in glastonbury you see and I've got a lovely photograph somewhere. I've put an icon on a bench in the Edgar Chapel, which is where King Edgar, Edward's father, was interred for the whole of the Middle Ages. And there's like this shaft of sunshine that comes down with all this rainbow light right onto this flipping icon. And it's a lovely little photograph. And it just, at the moment, I'm actually trying to get a, a modest reenactment of Edgar being crowned by Dunstan literally in the Edgar Chapel on the bank holiday Monday um, of the coronation weekend. Uh, so this is just playing, you know, with with the dates. Every, every church is going to be dedicated to somebody, you know, whether it's a saint or the Virgin Mary or the Archangel Michael, they've got a face day. It may be, in some cases... Some of these churches are oriented, and, you know, I can thank Andy Collins for cluing me into all this sort of stuff. There may be some constellation, some star that happens to rise, you know, at the, uh, in alignment with that church on that particular day of that feast. So what you basically do is you find out if you've got some local history, you find out about it. If you've got some obscure details about the life of a saint, you know, you can find a picture of that saint, some weird-ass icon on the internet. You can take it along to your local print shop and get them to bang out an A4 of it in colour, get some £1.99 frame out of proper job, and there you've got an icon. So you just flipping have a little light light, you take it along to wherever it is, you become aware of the history, and you just see what happens. And it's not at all out of the question that somehow or another um, some strange chain of, of association starts off and you start being taken into something. Now, what was interesting for me was um, during that period of time was the same period of time that it all kicked off in Ukraine. And I was, was getting into... Um, I had an archaeological map of Glastonbury Abbey that tells you all these different people who were buried there and where it was, and there were Saxon kings there, and one of them was Edmund Ironside, who's recently been featured in, in the Netflix Vikings Valhalla. Now, when he was um, defeated by King Canute, as he becomes, um, he's got a couple of kiddies, 
and they have to get out, you know, they're banished from the country and there's various stories that maybe Canute wanted to have them killed, but someone that was, was okay with it smuggled them out and they ended up at the court of Yaroslav the Wise in Kiev, in Rus, Rus, Kiev and Rus. Uh, so there were associations starting to come from Saxon England to, to Kiev and Rus that I knew absolutely nothing about in decades of being into all this stuff. But they started coming back at me once it was all kicking off in Ukraine. Uh, and I, I'm not going to come up with any kind of theories about why, about how that works. But it's very, very satisfying and mysterious because it says there is some kind of, it's like, you know, being in Parkwood on, on that particular day before the murder, there is an inscrutable timing about it. And it is a full, it's unquestionably a form of synchronicity, but my personal form of synchronicity is very often uh, comes about through adhering to, to dates and information and being aware of, well, you know, this is what I was doing 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but more and more history. You know, I went into, I think I do mention this in, in my uh, history and myth, I ended up in a, a, a place called uh, Virginia Water, um, where there's a, a, an enormous, great kind of um, obelisk um, to clearly a very important character. I've been there a number of times that I've never paid the slightest bit of attention to the inscriptions on it. And when I came up to it uh, and read it on this occasion, I discovered that it was erected to the guy um, who had been the victor of the Battle of Culloden. Uh, you know, a kind of not exactly held in high esteem by the Scots. And for some reason, I was filled with this prophetic rage and I just started shouting abuse out, you know, irrespective of people that were around me about this guy and about Culloden. Just get me out of here. I'm not, I'm not staying here with this. Now, later on that day, I was just curious. So I checked up on the Battle of Culloden. It's the same flipping day. I'm doing this on the anniversary of the Battle of Culloden and I'm just sounding off this thing. And I haven't even been brought in there. It's not me that's even responsible for the fact that I'm even in there. Now, how does that work? I don't know, but it, it just, it's its the sense of, because I'm a, an activated history nerd, that this literally just does itself. It literally does itself. And the more I'm plugged into it, and I'm in such a rich environment now, because if you're a history nerd and you live in Glastonbury, Glastonbury Abbey will eat your brain eventually. You know, and I know that it's eating my brain and I've now become part of the story by trying to get things happening in Glastonbury Abbey on Coronation Bank holiday weekend that are honouring the history and the mythology and so forth. So it is, you know, this is what I encourage people to do. Wherever the hell you are, you know, in, certainly if you're in Britain, as you rightly said, we've got, there are waves of history there's stuff that's happened during Roman times. There's stuff that's happened Saxons, Vikings, Normans, Plantagenets, War of the Roses, Civil War, all the way through. There is just stuff. You know, the amount of hauntings that there are of, of Civil War battlefields is absolutely legendary. Uh, and I've, I've found myself connecting up with the Wars of the Roses. That's all very strange. And because I've got this rich database in Glastonbury Abbey, I'm, I'm, you know, I could go on for days. I'm, I'm just giving you that one example of how somehow or another, because I was paying so much attention, I end up Edmund Ironside, 
flipping Kevin Russ, I end up just being pulled into this weird thing that I could never have imagined on Christmas Eve that leads me to the cult of Edward the Martyr and the fact that I've got a little icon of the geese in my living room now. You know, I went in there the other week on March the 18th. I went in there like a nutcase and I just walked down the centre of Glastonbury Abbey holding this icon up. Nobody says a word, of course they don't, because there's loads of other people that just stand around in Glastonbury Abbey where there used to be like little chapels and stuff just staring into space. It's like there is a whole bunch of different services that are all kind of going on in a plane that different people have been called upon to be part of at any given time and nobody ever knows the old picture. And sometimes people might, you might talk to somebody, they might talk to you, but other times, you know, People just understand that that is how you play it in there and it just works its way through, you know. So uh, it's great. It's wonderful, you know, and I'm sure whilst not everybody's got something as, as enormous and complex as Glastonbury Abbey five minutes down the road, you've got something. You know, there is some bit of folklore relating to the witches out by the trees in the wood, in the woods or there's some something, there's some haunting, there's some murder, there's some, there's just... The whole folklore thing now is very, very big now in this country and getting more and more so because I think people understand that it's interactive. It's not just a passive study. And the more you do it, I'm very clear, I'm kind of creating, I wrote a speech for Joseph Arimathea, full of stuff that I don't even historically believe. You know, you become part of, you become a vehicle for it. And it's in fact very, very satisfying extraordinarily satisfying in fact. feel like that's sort of where the link with Robert Anton Wilson's stuff and yours is. It's almost like living in this situation and kind of almost throwing yourself into it and sort of um, making it kind of part of your life so much that things start to happen. And I think that um, one of the things that I noticed from from reading your, uh, from reading both like The Green Stone and um, from reading uh, Avalonian Eon and reading about the... the, the um, the psychic questing stuff is that there seems to be like a to me like a definite kind of through line from say cosmic trigger to that and then from that to hellier the tv show yeah we've yeah, talked yeah. about on here before and it's like it's like almost the same thing but with a different set of symbols and because you and the psychic questing crew were also into history and because they're in england then the the symbology around it is all historical and english as opposed to, you know, uh, ufology. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to being uh, the symbols that maybe say, um, you know, the Mothman or Indrid Cold or whatever. And it's it's kind of, it's almost, it's all the same thing. And it's, it's all... It's to be all the same thing. One, one of the things, having been primed with Cosmic Trigger, when I came to the Green Stone and when I met Andy, um, I'd already got that background in Cosmic Trigger. And one of the things that fascinated me the most in Cosmic Trigger was the spectrum 
that is very much laid out in John Keel's work where ufology, the paranormal, you know, ghosts and haunting and so on, it's all essentially the same thing. Now, the Green Stone story, um, you know, Andy was um, initially a UFO investigator you know, in yeah, the yeah. 70s. He actually investigated, I think it was the first four or five reported abduction cases in this in this country, and a number of them were people, you know, Graham Phillips was one of them, and there was a guy called Barry King, people that were associated with the Greenstone story. And they were all, all these characters were drawn together for investigating the Sunderland family and their UFO experiences that, you know, young Gaynor and her brother had had, and, and when this group of people came together, um, a whole a whole new level of the game kicked in, you know. And there was uh, the legendary Avery abduction, you know. This is where Andy really first started off, nineteen seventy four, um, in South East England, which is as great and as comprehensive an abduction case as you could ever want, because basically after you know the great green mist that appears in the road, that the car full of, you know, mother and father and children just suddenly have their missing time episode. Gradually, it's not just memories of the classic abduction stuff that start being drawn out through hypnosis. And, you know, it's all very contentious and controversial, but these people start to have the entire spectrum of the paranormal play out around them, poltergeist stuff. They become psychic, they have weird dreams, and they're drawn out into the landscape. They're drawn out to become interested in folklore and stone circles and ancient sites and the sense that there is some coming together of a bunch of people and there's some great work to do. And this was something that fascinated me about the whole 60s and 70s earth mysteries ufology. You know, I did a whole book, Glastonbury Zodiac and Earth Mysteries Ufology, about the way in which the lights in the sky were a carrier wave. They were some mercurial, mutable, mysterious something. People went out sky watching. They would go out to places like Warminster, they'd go out to places like Glastonbury Tour, and they've had a few splits or they've done some acid or whatever, and they're seeing all the lights in the sky. But what happens is some of them become interested in the sights. Some of them become interested in stone circles, ley lines, alignments, folklore, history, and... The ufological gnosis, if you like, has activated that and it has brought some potency, some energy to it, some flavour to it that was otherwise missing. And a whole bunch of stuff is able to happen riding on the back of that. And then, you know, time goes by and perhaps the ufological aspects of it start to look very dubious. You know, you look back from 20, 30 years later at what was going on at Warminster in the mid-60s and it obviously doesn't feel the same, but it was very much a thing of the time, and it served as a vehicle. And the crop circle phenomenon, late 80s, early 90s, did exactly the same. Whatever anybody, whatever the real origin of it is, whatever you can say about it, it mutated people's consciousness. And a whole bunch of people spent all night out in the fields of Wiltshire for months on end, you know, and they came away completely different. And the chances are most of them, and you'll certainly find this if you read books like Andy's Light Quest or, or, or the books that Andy specifically did on the Crop Circle Mystery, people find themselves, you know, sucked into the prehistoric sites, 
encountering, you know, in visionary realms, shamans from 2,000 years ago and getting all kinds of weird downloads about history and, and, and so forth. And folklore, you know, it's a, it's a vehicle. And, and that, to me, that, that kind of, it, it has a trickster air to it. There is always, um, you know, a macabre humour about it. And it always, just as you think, you, you create some great theory about it and something that is almost the exact opposite comes along to say that, in fact, you know, it's something else. And John Michel used to say, you know, you can never work out really satisfactorily what the cause of any of these things are. You have to look at the effects. And, 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 and this is why I think of it as like it's a, a mercurial mutable carrier wave. And just as in earlier centuries you know, magical artistic traditions like alchemy, you know, and renaissance hermeticism, the historical validity of them, the ideas they have about how old their texts are and what they mean and how they all interface, they may be very, very shaky, but they serve as a vehicle for one of the most extraordinary cohesions of creativity and magical thought ever. And, you know, when people try and deconstruct the 19th century occultism like the Golden Dawn and so on and, oh, look, Egyptology, that's a load of rubbish and the Enochians a load of rubbish and Mavis was crazy and Crowley was crazy. And for, hell, you know, Hell's Teeth, man, that, if, if for people who really connect up with that stuff, something gets switched on. You learn all the associations, you work out the attributions of Kabbalah and what the tarot trumps are. Somebody else will tell you that it's another set of attributions Somebody who say, this isn't right, that isn't right. But the fact is that combination, there is flipping voltage going through it. And if you go along with it, and there's no question that people like R.A.W. discovered that majorly in the 60s, you know, with, with, with the most mercurial uh, alchemical energy of all, you know, LSD working its way through. And you have this whole thing now that it's all nothing but MK Ultra. it's nothing but a CIA flipping plot, that the old 60s is just done. A PSYOP, as far as I'm concerned, that is the most nefarious PSYOP of all, is to just pretend that, that it, the reductionism that just says it's nothing but that and it's all a load of meaningless crap and that Leary is nothing but a CIA stooge and so on and so forth. Yeah, I've read you know, David Gowns, Laurel Canyon, so on. I've read all this stuff. I know all this stuff. And I'm more than aware that Leary is unquestionably surrounded by all kinds of intelligence operatives and so on. But have any of these people ever done acid for fuck's sake? You know, if you've <laughs> done it, then you might realise that, like, I, I read people who think because Ken Casey took acid in a militarily controlled um, situation to begin with, Therefore, the whole of the electric Kool-Aid acid test scenario was nothing but some kind of MK Ultra operation. No, it freaking wasn't. You know, I'm not saying these guys weren't all over it and there wasn't all sorts of stuff going on. You know, I've certainly gone a long way into the Manson case like that. But to me, there's no doubt about the fact uh, that, that something absolutely flipping astonishing was going through this. And in my Alistair Crowley, Neon Horus, which is... My homage to Cosmic Trigger. Without Cosmic Trigger, there would be no... That book of mine would not exist. There's a whole section in there, The Psychology of Thelema, which is my exposition of the eight-circuit model that's in Prometheus Rising and Psychology. 
And it was very much a process of self-education because it's all very well, okay, I've read Cosmic Trigger a stupid amount of times, but it's another thing altogether to actually try and write about it and summarise it to your own satisfaction, to write about the eight-circuit model and summarise it to your own satisfaction. And also, you know, to, to, to work with it, it's not just about... Um, you know, how you stimulate synchronicities is, is there in Prometheus Rising. And you do balance the opposites out. You know, really don't just settle into your own little habitual mindset of what you're comfortable with. Go out your way to read and input things that you're not at all comfortable with and find out about the things, the thinkers that you don't like and you think are, are, are nefarious. And when you come back to where you thought was home, it actually looks different. It doesn't mean you've suddenly changed your mind altogether. But something else is going on, and that all helps helps the fun and games to uh, you know to activate still further until it, it is an endless initiatory process, and it doesn't ever end because you you know un, unless you're going to be an advisor of the Danta Ramana Maharshi type and go and live on on a Runachala, you're always engaged in the world historical drama, and who knows what the hell is is kicking in now, you know. R.A.W. and company had this astonishing drama of the 60s and a very weird-ass denouement in the 70s to try and figure out what the hell. Um, we're living through some pretty strange times now, so it, it is important to uh, make as much as we can, to learn as much as we can uh, of, of what happened to the people that have been there before us and maybe they didn't get it all right. You know, We can still love them without necessarily imitating them. None of those people would be wanting us to just imitate them. But we at least in this massively conspiratorial time stand some sort of chance of not just being sucked into out-and-out craziness if we've got that sort of model agnosticism generally hanging in, in, in the back of our brains. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes it so relevant today, uh, Cosmic Trigger. Like, I think one of the things that we noticed on reading it was um, just how much it has influenced all the other things that we've read and everyone else we've spoken to. And, you know, it pops up all the time, doesn't it? It gathers together all of the things that you're seeing again in Hellier, aren't you? You know, um, the, the, the sort of the, the quality of the synchronicities and even some of the subjects that are being brought up. Right at the within... end of the second series, um, they've even got to the point, like with R.A.W., he says he entered Chapel Perilous when he was reading uh, something in the Book of Lies by Crowley, and they were literally right on that. But it yeah. seemed that they didn't have the background. However much they certainly had read, it was like I found myself sort of not quite shouting at the TV screen, but like, <laughs> for heaven's sake, look, this is obviously where you're getting to now. Uh, yeah. but I don't know, you know, I, would I don't know what's happened to those people since. I don't know if we're ever going to get a third series. It probably blew up in such a way that it mutated the old phenomenon and how they interacted with it and what they were having to field off. But they were clearly right on the edge of Chapel Perilous. You know, there was some classic flipping stuff going on there that it was like, for heaven's sake, you lot, just read, um, you know, read Cosmic Trigger a couple of times. And just, <laughs> yeah. you know, enable yourself to sort of proceed a bit more clearly. 
Well, that, that's one of the things that seems to be coming from, from what you're saying about your your own approach, um, which is almost like the Keelian idea that if you interact with the phenomena, the phenomena will interact back with you, you know, and you talked about different ways in which that can happen through history from the alchemists to the uh, Renaissance Semeticism, the Golden Dawn, the LSD in the 60s, the psychic questing in the 70s, then you've got the Keel, you've got the UFO phenomenon. It's everyone... Uh, the way that Keel says that once someone has experienced a UFO once, you know, there's a high instance of multiple sightings following yeah. that, you know, because once you're interacting with it, you you will interact back. And and for the, the people who are listening who haven't read Cosmic Trigger, he talks about um RW talks about this idea of Chapel Perilous, which I think that I'd misunderstood before I'd properly read that book because Chapel Perilous, I almost thought was like a warning. It's like, oh, don't mess with that stuff or you'll end up in Chapel Perilous sort of thing. Whereas actually, I think it's an essential part of the process and how you engage with it is is what is the important thing in that. Um, can you speak to that at all? You know, how you can engage with the phenomena? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a threshold crossing kind of initiative test. Uh, and we're getting it in recent times more so than ever when we had, you know, the whole... COVID, malarkey, you know, Glastonbury is dense in conspiracism. People can really make uh, an enormous great conspiracy about absolutely anything and they can find themselves in a very miserable, humorless hall of mirrors from which there is increasingly no way out. And the problem is now, whereas in the past, people were comparatively isolated in their conspiracism, you know, now, because of the internet and everything, people are, can pump this up in each other's heads to an absolutely endemic quality. And we've reached the point collectively where, I mean, fair enough, there are good reasons for why we're not going to believe anything that any authority tells us uh, as far as governments are concerned. But this now stretches, obviously, into the realm of, uh, uh, of academia. Of course, there's vested interests. Of course, there are people that are bought. But we've got to the point that there are people in Glastonbury, you know, the, the Hitler-worshipping um, Holocaust denier is also a flat earther. You know, we've got, <laughs> we've got people on the high Excellent. street putting up enormous great sort of displays um, expounding the flat earth theory. Uh, people are mixing and mashing together all kinds of stuff. Well, I mix and mash all kinds of stuff together. Uh, but it's, I guess it's a case of, of the quality of data that you feed on. You know, Gurdjieff said to Aspensky that impressions are food. You know, the stuff you read, the stuff you feed your head on, the music you listen to, the art you imbibe. You can nourish yourself with higher vitamins or you can just flip in, gradually degrade and poison yourself. And I think the extent to, to which... You, you, you know, spiral off into some insular little world where you're no longer able to engage with the rest of the human race is a little bit of an acid test of, of, of where that's getting you. You know, if, if any kind of theory or body or knowledge is worth having, it should ultimately enable you to just hang together a little bit better with the other humans on the planet rather than think that they're agents of some terrible conspiracy and it doesn't matter if they flipping die. And, and you get that, you know, that rubs off into general political um, discourse. There's always been uh, a lot of, you know, dichotomy and, and people demonise the opposition. Uh, and in my book, History and Myth, I, I was very strong on the fact that a lot of the kind of social movements that you get 
are not a million miles away from medieval millennial cults where basically you you are looking to restore the golden age of the ancient mythologies, but you've been infested with the Book of Revelation and you think that your opposition are, are demonic in some way and they all need to be chucked into a lake of fire before the city of the New Jerusalem comes down and Jesus arrives in all his glory. Well, all of that is there with, in, with, with QAnon, you know, a lot of Glastonbury's New Ages went over to QAnon um, en masse and were willing to believe all sorts of stuff about Trump as a cult messiah. But because of the fact, I guess, that I'm synchronous in manifestation, I always want validation by proof of things actually are happening. And the thing about QAnon that did my head in was it never delivered. You know, years went by and there's just volumes and volumes and volumes of material coming out. This is happening, that's happening. But beyond a complete fantasy, if you like, none of it ever delivered. You know, there, there are still, there are people in Glastonbury who still believe that Trump is actually really still the president, you know, and that Biden um, is, is not even Biden. And, that the you know, when you see film footage of him in the White House, it's just a film studio and all kinds, you know, people are still believing that. Now, that to me is a modern day Chapel Perilous because you, people are literally just stuck in it. There is a kind of gnosis. In fact, in Alistair Crowley in the Inner Hall, I've took, there's a whole section on Montauk, which is like the ultimate kind of um, all every episode of the X Files rolled into one. Uh, conspiracism as a form of initiation. I think it's possible um, to somehow find that we're, we're in this current age, we're in a, a Chapel Perilous par excellence situation. But it's what it's actually doing to you, whether it's, whether it's feeding you and nourishing you and whether there are any exemplars that you can say they came out the other side of it. Um, and, and to most people's way of thinking, I certainly don't think of Donald Trump as an exemplar who, who somehow, you know, stands apart from, from the miasma so, yeah, Chapel Perilous is, is, is a collective thing and I tend to link it in with what in, in Crowley gets called Caronzon. It's like this sort of lying, distorting um, dweller on the threshold of, of a potential abyss. It will just suck you into a space that however much people talk about being warriors of the truth, a lot of these conspiracies are pretty angry people who will quite happily flipping kill you if they had a chance, if they could throw you into a lake of fire. If you, if you, you know, maybe it's one of the acid tests is if you think the people you don't agree with or will be thrown into a, the equivalent of a book of Revelation, lake of fire, maybe you need to have a word with yourself about what it is that you're believing and, and the truth of that, <laughs> yeah. you know. Don't, don't, don't try and come on as, as spiritual. There are people in Glastonbury who... You know, new age types, people that have been with gurus, people that have been on the yogic path. And when QAnon was in full full flow, they were basically saying, come on, Trump, declare martial law and just get every single person that's ever been associated with the Clintons and Democrats and basically arrest them and put them into Guantanamo Bay. So in other words, sling them, just arrest everybody and sling them in a concentration camp. Uh, and the sheer irony of this from the Love and Light crew uh, was completely missed, but it seemed pretty obvious that something <laughs> gone badly wrong to me. Yeah, why are they so invested in it? Like, it's not... 
it's like they're picking up on something that's not even in their country and doesn't affect them in the slightest. It's just like they're angry for the sake of having something to be angry about. Well, I, I guess there are there are sort of British versions of, of this, but clearly the centre of gravity of it is it, with all that was uh, over in the states. It is profoundly dangerous. It is profoundly mysterious, and, and I, yeah, I was quite horrified by how things were going in Glastonbury. I was finding that there were people I'd given lectures. Um, on things like Gurdjieff and Nicholas Rurik and William Blake and people that had been at those lectures were sending me, you must see this video and it's some load of flipping QAnon rubbish, you know, and, I'm th- and I became disheartened and people that had come to my lectures, well, yeah, let's just get the Democrats off the street, let's get lock them all up in a concentration camp and in some cases let's kill them all because, you know, Trump is, is working against the satanic pedo cabal of the Illuminati and is in league with the Pleiadians and the Arcturians. And I just decided I'm done with this. I can't talk to, I cannot talk to any audience of people that has got this, these sort of characters in anymore. Uh, so this was part of how I found myself migrating into Glastonbury Abbey and just kind of putting on events and walkabouts in there and, you know, doing Zooms and talking to you guys and so on, because all that is still out there and it is very, very weird. But the stories that I told you at the start of all this, you know, what happened in Park Wood, uh, finding the swastika up by the tour, they're, they're enough to tell me that I'm plugged into what matters, you know, uh, and, and that real things are, are, are manifesting as, as the proof of that. Going back to the, the QAnon thing, it's kind of interesting how RAW did a lot of stuff around, you know, the idea of conspiracies and almost kind of creating conspiracy theories as as a kind of game and as a kind of joke, and then you you have to wonder if some of the techniques that he used in in doing that are now being used by, for want of a better phrase, the bad guys. Well, we to... had this whole thing after twenty sixteen that Operation Mindfuck had been weaponized, and the, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you've put that far better than I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a while. You know, it did very much seem that that was the case. It did seem that that these guys had got a better handle on warping reality out and that, you know, the original, you know, the people that are the RIW enthusiasts had had, had simply lost the swing of things. And it's difficult to say where we're at now. Uh, 2016 was a triumph of some kind of Discordian chaos magic right across the board. I mean, not just in America, but in Britain with Brexit, whatever the rights and wrongs of all that are. Whereas the next election, and I think um, I think it was Greer in um, his book, The, the King in Orange, um, has already made this point. That same level of poetry wasn't there in the next election. Whatever weird false was with Trump in 2016 wasn't there next time round. And... You know, it, it it turned to shit in a different way. The contention there was it was, was different. Um, that kind of thing had somehow deserted him, if you like. Um, and I think you can't, because it's so mercurial and because it's coming from a depth beneath the zeitgeist that nobody's got a handle on. You can, you, you know, people tried all that again. And it didn't really work. And, and you can't, you can't do it to order. You know, you can't create some kind of formula. For like, you know, there was all sorts of magical wars going on, people cursing Brexit, people cursing Trump and so on. Ultimately, here we are still. Um, 
and he's making a lot of pretty contentious noises right now that might not kind of necessarily play out very harmoniously. Uh, you can't, I, I, I think you just have to respond to what happens as it happens and you have to respond on the basis of what what is going to poison me, you know, or, and what is going to nourish me and what form of interaction can I have with the rest of the world and the people in it that add to that problem or actually sort of it in some tiny little way solve it. And to me, the big, big picture of history, uh, it's incredible how much people's collective memory is, it just doesn't exist. You know, there, there are certainly plenty of people here in Glastonbury who have already got the faintest idea of what how we even got to the state we're in in the ice street, you know, what has happened in Glastonbury to bring it to this point. They're full of mythology. Yeah, you know, I was in um, the Abbey a little while ago. There was a, a, a party of Spanish tourists coming up to this this rock, and it's just a, a geological artifact that's been that's been nicely placed in one of in the middle of Glastonbury Abbey down the end. And this Spanish tourist guide was being translated into English. And she was saying, and this is the rock that Arthur drew Excalibur out of. You know, uh, my feeling is, my own experience, the more I stick to the real history, actually the more expansive and weird and wild what comes back at me actually is. Whereas when you just go off onto Fantasy Island, um, actually all that happens is you just create more and more of a, of, a, of this flipping you know, unicorns and sparklified nonsense that, that is, is, is a very pseudo version of the potency, the Arthurian mythos and, and everything that this place is all about. So always, you know, when I go into bookshops, I don't go and look at the occult section, I go and look at the history books. That's always the first place I go to. I was a history freak when I was a young boy. Uh, and I'm really, really glad that I've got that foundation. Um, when I look back on the 60s and so on, I've got a very, very clear timeline of what happened when, and that just keeps me from getting to, you know, I dare say I'm confused and deluded about some of it, but I've got enough, you know, background to uh, keep me in check. So what we usually do is we ask our guests if they've got anything that they think it's important that our listeners should read, you know, to, to, to get them into your mode of thinking, that sort of thing. Which well, all my books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're all, they're all out there on Kindle. Uh, not all of them are now are all available in paperwork anymore. But if you're in the UK, there's still, you know, about half of my titles are available as paperbacks. They're all available in Kindle all around the world. And I've just kind of instigated a new... Um, Zoom phase of my life. I did a, a, a Zoom presentation on Joe's Faramathera last week, and I'm going to, in fact, I'll probably, I'm toying with the idea of doing the Alistair Crowley um, 
Timothy Leary material in my Crowley book as a big Zoom in a few weeks' time. So on my website, Paul Weston Glastonbury, uh, there are, are there will be more stuff pertaining to that coming up. I'm certainly intending to extend myself, as I say, I'm not that keen on doing physical lectures to nutcases in Glastonbury anymore. I'm more interested in, in reaching out. I had a very, very good demographic turn up for the first Zoom that I've done. I was very happy with that and uh, more of the same. Yeah, and if people buy your books in the UK, they come signed, which they is do fantastic indeed. as well. Yeah, because yeah, I, am yeah. pers- I am primarily the person that's got them. So I will, you know, I, I, as a matter of course, sign any of my Amazon titles that I send off to people. Fantastic. And um, for recommendations for people um, outside of your own oeuvre, what are some essential texts that, that people can use to get into the Paul Western mindset? Well, obviously, um, when it comes to R.A.W. Cosmic Trigger and, say, Prometheus Rising, uh, I yeah. would say with with Andy Collins, uh, the Seventh Sword, because that's a psychic question. But but what Andy's got into in recent years, he's done a hell of a lot of extraordinary history books, you know, beneath the pyramids, uh, being a great example. And the thing about Andy's work, although it's anchored in meticulous research that is at the absolute edge of of the current archaeology, he's always inspired by non-ordinary means that set him off on whatever train of thought he's on that leads to his various books. So I think Andy is is in a class of his own in, re, in relation to all that, and, and he always has been. He's driven, you know, he's driven to an extent that most people would never be able to, you know, understand how he can keep the pace up that he does. And he's got a new book coming out on uh, female pharaoh Sobek Nofru Ray, Probably pretty much in May, probably around about the time this program comes out. And if you've read, you know, Seventh Sword, if you've read Avalonian Eon and Atagar, it's a, it's Serbic Nofru Ray was was a very spectacular presence in the uh, Greenstone story as it eventually played out. Have you got any um, film, music or television recommendations that you could give? Well, obviously, if people haven't seen Twin Peaks, then they've got to see yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, uh, but, yeah. Uh, now, um, <laughs> I guess Robin of Sherwood, uh, one of the first examples, if you've read Avalonian Eon, um, you know, Andy was really into Robin of Sherwood because he felt the mysticism in it was was not a million miles away from psychic questing. And he later finds himself getting a phone call from somebody who talks about stuff that's been happening to him out in dreams that they've been having while they're out in California of their home in Yorkshire. And they start talking and it turns out that, you know, this person, Mark Ryan, was in Robin of Sherwood. And one of the very memorable occasions when I knew that we'd ripped reality to pieces was in 1990. They were, they were talking about making a movie. Uh, it never happened, but it turned into the Kevin Costner vehicle. And Mark Ryan, who played the Saracen swordsman Nazir, had grown his hair again to look exactly like that character. And he still had the props of the two swords that he used to use. And Andy had told him that we were all very keen on this. And he turned up for an episode that we were in, uh, where we went to a place in the middle of nowhere in Derbyshire where there was absolutely nothing of the 20th century. And he turned up looking exactly like he did in Robin Sherwood, exactly as Nazir, and he had the two swords with him. And he came along with us and kept up the rear like he did in Robin Sherwood. And at that point, it was like there had been a membrane broken 
it was like, you know, the TV has started leaking, but more than that, <laughs> the, limit, the, the, the normal sense of limitations of, of what happens in one's life just, you know, st- rapidly went down the sink. Uh, and that did yeah. very much help um, to uh, cultivate the mindset where so much was able to come through. So Robin Sherwood, yeah, absolutely for certain. That's that's great stuff. I mean, Excalibur is is in certain oh, yeah. it's a dated movie. Some people will find it. I know that I'm, I'm seeing younger people watching it and saying that they don't like it. But for me, it still does the trick. I watched it on, you know, I watched it on the Winter Solstice just gone uh, for the first time in quite a while and it still did the trick for me. Yeah, yeah I used to love it when I was a kid. Like me and my brother used to watch it a picture of um, Merlin in there. Um, you know, John, John yeah. Ballman was a fan of John Cooper Powis. He had even wanted to make a movie, a glass to be romanced. He read Powis's uh, Porius, which is a very strange kind of version of Merlin. And so Nicole Williamson's you know, distinctly eccentric take on Merlin in Excalibur has got a bit of Poe's, you know, there in the background as a flavour, which is quite intriguing. Have you seen um, The Green Knight? I haven't seen it yet. No, it is on... I think you might like that. I'm waiting for the appropriate moment. There will be an appropriate moment to do that, yeah. In terms of music, there's a really, really good lecture, which I'll link to in the show notes, that's on your YouTube um, channel which connects um, you know the, the music of um, some British composers Rafe uh, Vaughan Williams um, and to, uh, to sort of the various sort of sites around Glastonbury and that sort of thing which I really really enjoyed. Oh, that's, not, that's, that's nice to know it was it was very important to me see when when I realised back in the late 80s how much work Andy had done in Glastonbury and that I was going to get more and more immersed in this and when I began to realise that I was, we were going to, you know, do a lot of work in the Glastonbury Zodiac, I, I basically wanted to activate every single part of myself by immersion in the Arthurian mythos in Glastonbury and in a certain vibe to the absolute max. And, you know, music like like Vaughan Williams, you know, like Sending Fantasia and the Thing by Thomas Tallis, yeah. that really did the trick. And, you know, Elgar, uh, it's a shame that most people associate with jingoistic stuff like Land of Open Glory. He was a very mystical guy. He was riding about on his pony um, in the Malvern Hills as a young boy and literally hearing music coming out of the ground, you know, and that place mm. is right at the centre of the landscape alignment that John Michel called the Circle of Perpetual Choirs. So it's very intriguing, you know, that the, he's, he's kind of feeling that the trees and the land and the, the, the river and rivers and so on are, are he's literally transcribing some of their music. So I, I, I built up a deliberate soundtrack that I was just immersing myself in this all the time, you know, looking at books of pre-Raphaelite paintings, reading not very cool anymore, poets like Tennyson, uh, but it just all... When you're on a 36-hour Vision Quest intensive, chucking yourself in a weir at midnight and all this kind of stuff, <laughs> if that's your mental furniture, the emotional tone that is activated by it has all that material to work with. So it will be, you know, uh, it's got the possibilities of being a more exalted awakening than if you've just been feeding your head on a load of crap. You know, you could have some in, immense experience of terror and transformation where you throw yourself into a weir and you come up for breath and start howling and screaming if you've got all that food those impressions 
then what what the alchemy that works its way through you uh, is going to come out far better. You know, I can say that fairly confidently, I think. Fantastic. And I'll link to all that in the show notes. If you're looking for more Vase, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at Vase and then Vase spelt backwards. So that's at V-A-Y-S-E-E-S-Y-A-V. Our website is www.vase.co.uk and there you can get all of our episodes and all of our show notes. Uh, The show notes are complete on the website. They don't get cut off like they do on some of the podcast providers. Um, you can email us with your own experiences. We'd love to hear from you. And that's vaseinfo at gmail.com. Um, and um, if you want to support us, we talk about this every episode. There's the Bandcamp where you can download the amazing soundtrack to this show. And uh, Buckley kindly donates any of the proceeds that he makes through the Bandcamp back into the podcast to keep things running. And also we now have a Ko-Fi or Ko-Fi. Um, you can find the link to that on Twitter um, or on our website. Basically, all the vase is free all the time. But if you have any spare cash and you would like to support us, you can do that through the Ko-Fi or Ko-Fi. And if you take a monthly subscription, you'll have access to our Discord server where we have a fantastic community of weirdos who talk about this weird stuff just all the time every day. Um, So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We do really want to hear from you, so please do get in touch. And Paul, thanks so much for being here. And before you go, I think that Buckley has one last question for you. So through some strange magic, Robert Anton Wilson is back from the dead and he knocks on your door. He turns up in Glastonbury, knocks on your door. Hi, Paul. He's come to spend the day with you, okay? So you've got a day with Robert Anton Wilson in Glastonbury. What would you do? Well, first of all, I'd say I was gutted that he missed the Bohemian Grove film footage uh, because I think (laughs) he'd absolutely flipping loved to see that. And then I would have said to him, well, look, you know, you wrote uh, the whole thing about the Tsarist occupation government, the thing that at, at the Constitution during the time of Bush, what on earth have you got to say about the Trump epoch and where we find ourselves now? And in terms of, you know, quantum psychology, uh, what exactly can you, can you, what hints can you give us concerning the post-truth, post-reality era? You know, what What kind of language are we supposed to use to frame this in order to not, you know, fall down some pretty big holes that we're never going to get ourselves out of? But um, beyond all that seriousness, um, I would certainly like to uh, thank him for the, the gift of never-ending humour amongst the terror uh, as, as, you know, the best antidote. The best, the best recipe for sanity and reality is is to be able to appreciate the absurdism uh, that is, you know, there in the horror of these deranged people that are attempting to uh, control our lives.
There's some out there for you. It should announce itself fairly soon. You know, I, I guess I guess the analogy I'd use is if you got sold, okay, some fake LSD and you swallowed it. For a little while, you could convince yourself that maybe it was starting to work, and maybe you were starting to come up on a trip. But there would be a certain point where it was bleeding obvious that either you were or you were, and that is possibly you know how it's going to be with any of these things. You know, you can, oh, you're going to get a result out of it, and it will start to happen. And it will be bleeding obvious. 